Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at our extremely steady history of political violence, from the Revolution, through the Civil War, Reconstruction, and Jim Crow, into the Civil Rights Era, the Militia Movement, and Domestic Terrorism, and now to our current, once again radicalized, right-wing movement willing to use and tacitly condone violence as a political tactic. Clips today are from Inside Edition, AmeriCast, The Tom Hartman Program, System Check, The Gray Area, ABC News, and In the Thick, with an additional members-only clip from The Gray Area. And while I have your attention, please consider setting your podcatching app to notify you when we release new episodes so you don't miss any. The January 6th Capitol assault was not the first violent incident at the U.S. Congress. According to Yale historian Joanne Freeman, Between 1830 and 1860, there were at least 70 violent incidents on the House and Senate floor. Guns being pulled, knives being pulled, fistfights, brawls, canings. The caning of Charles Sumner, which happened in 1856, is pretty much the most famous violent incident in the U.S. Congress. Basically, Charles Sumner, who was this very prominent Massachusetts abolitionist senator, gave a really aggressive speech about Kansas. This was the famous bleeding Kansas moment when they were debating, was Kansas going to be a free state or a slave state? Obviously, Sumner did not want it to be a slave state, but in the speech that he gave, he insulted a number of congressmen, he kind of insulted the South, and one of the kinsmen of one of the insulted congressmen, his name is Preston Brooks of South Carolina, and he was a representative. He heard what happened, actually checked the newspaper to be sure that he had gotten the words right, and then decided that he was going to punish Sumner for what he had said. It was a matter of honor. So he took a cane, he went to the Senate, and then walked over to Sumner, who was seated at his desk, and Brooks basically said, you've insulted me, you've insulted my family, you've insulted South Carolina, and essentially you need to pay for that, and began just really bludgeoning him with the cane over the head. The desks in the Senate were bolted to the ground. So Sumner, in shock, can't immediately get away because he can't sort of get from underneath the desk. So ultimately, in a panic to get away, he wrenched this bolted desk from the ground with Brooks all the time continuing to really attack him. Sumner not only tore his desk from the floor, but also ended up at the front of the chamber, bleeding profusely from the head and unconscious. Shattered the cane in the process, incidentally. It was at this moment when the slavery debate was really peaking. And what was so striking about it, it literally acted out the South seeming to cane the North into submission on the topic of slavery. This is probably one of the incidents uh, that led to the U.S. Civil War because it not only gears up the Republicans for their campaign in 1856, but it also inspires John Brown to commit what we would largely describe as a massacre in Kansas against the pro-slavery forces, which then, of course, leads to him uh, conducting a raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859. What's important to know, it was not the only violent incident in Congress in this time period. And as a matter of fact, between 1830 and 1860, there were at least 70 
violent incidents on the House and Senate floor, often not reported on the record, so often not necessarily known about, but there. There's one point, I think it's in the 1830s, when someone rushes into the House, has a gun, doesn't like the debate, and wants to shoot the congressman who's talking about what he doesn't like, right? He, so he actually comes in wanting to murder a congressman. And I believe that in the sort of stampede that happens when a man with a gun runs into the house and tries to shoot somebody, the gun gets smacked out of his hand, but in the process it goes off and it goes through the door of the house and hits a Capitol Hill police officer in the leg. Congress generously gave that Capitol Hill police officer money to apologize for the fact that this happened. Another violent incident happened in February of 1858. So in this case, there's a northerner by the name of Galusha Grow. Galusha Grow is standing amidst a group of his fellow colleagues and saying something to them. And while he's there talking, he hears someone say something and he says, I object from where he's standing. Now, Lawrence Kitt from South Carolina had definitely been drinking over dinner. He hears Galusha Grow, who's a Republican and an abolitionist, say, I object from somewhere kind of near him and becomes upset. So first he says out loud, object from over at your own side of the house, don't object near me. And Galusha Grow, who is a fighting kind of a man, says, I don't have to listen to a whip-holding slave driver. Okay, this is not good for what's going to happen next. Lawrence Kitt supposedly mumbled out loud, I'll see about that, and strutted over to where Grow was, grabbed him by the collar to punch him, but Groh punched Kit first and knocked him flat. End result is a mass brawl of scores of congressmen physically fighting in front of the speaker's chair in the House. It went on for a little while. One congressman pulled another congressman's toupee off his head by mistake and... He shouts out, uh, I scalped him. And everyone looks around and everyone laughs at the follically challenged uh, representative. That was the end of the fight, right? Everyone laughed. But people who were watching said, and actually a reporter said, we just saw an armed group of Northerners and an armed group of Southerners run at each other on the floor of the house and engage in combat. That looks like a war. The U.S. Civil War began just three years later. There was one especially jarring incident of violence in Congress in the 20th century. In 1954, a quartet of Puerto Rican nationalists opened fire on the floor of the House of Representatives from a visitor's gallery. Five representatives were injured. We're going inside, we found Congressman Bentley of Michigan lying on the floor, bleeding extensively, very, very badly in the waist. The shooters were apprehended, convicted, and sentenced to long terms in prison. In the late 1970s, President Carter commuted their sentences. If it makes us feel any better, relatively speaking, we're not nearly as violent as revolutionary France, Russia, <laughs> Germany, Britain on occasion, etc. Fought multiple civil wars and so forth and so on. As an American society at large goes, so goes Congress. Our politicians and, of course, the people of Washington, D.C., are subject to violence just as much as anyone else is. And so it means things like Congress are vulnerable and actually democracy is vulnerable in ways that I don't think Americans often think of.
at the full sweep of United States history, more often than not, violence was endemic to political culture. This was certainly never true more than in the 1850s when the contest over slavery and particularly over its expansion into the Western territories became an all-consuming feature of American politics. It really stepped up when Congress passed something called the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which essentially abrogated a decades-old agreement that slavery would not be permitted in certain territories north of a certain uh, demarcation line. The situation in Kansas and in Washington became increasingly fraught and violent. Ultimately, of course, this concluded uh, as it almost seems in retrospect it naturally would have in a civil war by 1861. And then, Josh, it's Justin in London here. Can I move us forward 100 years, so to the 1950s, and, and focus not actually on violence itself, but on violent speech and the kind of conspiracies that that make people do violent things? Because it's, it's fair to say, isn't it? And I'm thinking about the John Birch Society, people who said Eisenhower was a communist, people who said all sorts of peculiar things about life in those days, long, long, long before social media. We did have conspiracies, didn't we, in the US? We had them in the 1850s. We had them in the 1950s, certainly. And if you look at the years leading up to the Kennedy assassination in 1963, there was a very clear escalation of ultra-right uh, rhetoric and incitement against John Kennedy, against his running mate, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, you know, there were uh, famously uh, the, the Birch Society put out posters, wanted posters that, you know, purported to basically be a law enforcement wanted poster uh, for John F. Kennedy, you know, wanted for treason. So that sort of rhetoric obviously um, heated the political environment. And, you know, it, it would be hard be hard to make a case that it didn't contribute to some of the violent political outcomes in the 1960s in the U.S., you know, from the Kennedy assassinations, plural, uh, to Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. One point, though, that is worth making, and this brings us back to the 1850s, you know, we can we can look at different decades and different periods when violence was a central component of American politics or when violence um, kind of polluted American politics. What was different about the 1850s and what makes it such an interesting parallel to today is that militia violence was both sanctioned and in some cases egged on and led by elected political officials or party officials. So what we see today is increasingly much more like what we saw in the 1850s or the 1860s and 70s, where a political party has decided that it doesn't mind associating itself loosely with militia groups that are clearly seeking to, to bring violence into the political process. And that's something we haven't seen for some time. Uh, there are also, of course, let's be blunt about it, an awful lot of guns around in modern America and an awful lot of guns that can do a huge amount of damage. When when you look at what's going on at the moment and you look at possibly a post next presidential election system where there is a real fight to be had, at least metaphorically, um, about whether the system has been fair and who the president is, etc. Does it worry you the simple access that people have to, to the ability to harm each other? Well, I think people like me worry, generally speaking, about the simple access that Americans have to guns. We're a far more armed country uh, than we were in, in the 1850s, which raises the stakes. I would argue that there are other countries in which violence is endemic to politics. But in the United States, you have a heavily armed citizenry, or at least a portion of the citizenry that's heavily armed. 
it's extremely worrying. Now, we're talking about violent threats and violent acts that are coming from the right wing of American politics and being excused or uh, mocked and uh, encouraged by politicians on the right. And then, of course, there are people saying, oh, well, what about the left? They're they're, they're not blameless. There is violence that comes from the left as well. They'll point to uh, the shooting of um, Steve Scalise in uh, 2017, five years ago, and that was a, a left wing attacker. Emergency crews rushed injured House Majority Whip Steve Scalise into a helicopter after a shooter opened fire during an early morning baseball practice for congressional Republicans. Steve Scalise was on second base, playing second base, fielding balls, and um, all of a sudden we heard a heard a very loud shot. Everybody thought that sounds like a gun. Is there any real equivalence between the amount of violence we've seen driven by left wing politics and those that are happening on the right? I mean, in terms of volume, there's no equivalence whatsoever. There are certainly examples of left-wing violence or threats of violence. There's what happened to Steve Scalise several years ago. Uh, there was a left-wing um, protester, call him terrorist, who threatened the safety, the life of Justice Brett Kavanaugh more recently. And again, pointing back to the 1850s, I think the key question is, is that violence being done in concert coordination or at least with the winking support of a major political party? And the fact of the matter is, is that you didn't have Democratic members of Congress rushing to defend it or call it fake news or argue that there must have been some other reason that Steve Scalise was shot. And we just don't know what that is, but we could speculate wildly about it. That just didn't happen. And what you have today is a whole complex of conservative media, uh, including new conservative media. Um, and a rising generation of Republican members of Congress and other elected officials at the state level, the Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, Lauren Boebert caucus, who openly defend and support, you know, the actions of people on the right who perpetrated violence in, in, in the political process. There have been Republican members of Congress who've come out um, and called the January 6th rioters and insurrectionists heroes. Uh, there was one Republican congressman who gave one of them a flag. So, um I just don't see the equivalency and and the, where I do see a really clear comparison is to the 1850s, 60s and 70s when you know a political party became increasingly comfortable in its you know coexistence with with uh, violent white militias. Audiobooks may have started out as an accommodation for the blind, but of course now millions more benefit from the ease and convenience of audiobooks, and you may not need me to convince you about audiobooks, but I do want to convince you to switch and start getting your books from Libro. By far, the best way to purchase audiobooks is by subscribing to an audiobook club for a flat fee to get one book credit each month, plus a discount on any other purchases. And this deal may sound familiar as the audiobook arm of the big box store in the sky offers just such a plan, but while they are trying to squash the little guy, Libro is explicitly fighting for the independent booksellers. For just one example, Amazon works to sign exclusivity deals to lock up books from big-name authors to their platform, which prevents indies and even libraries from having a chance to compete. I mean, competing with other businesses is one thing, but keeping books out of the grasp of libraries is downright unethical. 
On the other hand, Libro is a special purpose corporation designed to share their profits directly with indie booksellers in partnership with bookshop.org. So it couldn't be more clear. Make the switch and join Libro through our link to let them know we sent you. Go to bestoftheleft.com slash L-I-B-R-O. That's bestoftheleft.com slash Libro. And of course, there's a link in the show notes for your convenience. Welcome to the program. Uh, where where does uh, Trump fit into the the uh, you know I I remember the, this right wing movement or variations on it back you know in the nineteen sixties when I was uh, thirteen years old I think um, it was the year Barry Goldwater was running and my dad took me to a John Birch Society meeting just to introduce me to the crackpots in our neighborhood. Um, so I know that some of these guys have been around for a long long time. How much of this movement today? Um, you were reporting, you know, on January 6th and all this. How much of this precedes Trump and how much has Trump contributed to it? Well, I think it's a combination of the two. Um, as you said, you know, the, we've had these uh, tendencies and elements for uh, as long as the country has existed. And certain uh, political leaders and pundits have uh, more or less explicitly exploited them for political or financial gain. And Trump, I think, uh, has gone much farther than any of his predecessors and his willingness to engage openly uh, with them. Goldwater is an interesting example. And I think that there's uh, a useful uh, parallel with uh, the the lead up to uh, January 6th, because that was, you know, you're talking about the 60s and yeah, 64. The, yeah. And, and, and so that was really a reactionary movement in the sense that, um, it was galvanized in response to the civil rights movement and the civil rights act. Um, and similarly, what I saw on the ground with a lot of these groups, um, in the summer of 2020, the same groups that would end up, uh, spearheading the stop the steal movement and the attack on the Capitol was an intense, um, an intense uh, electrification and, and boost in energy uh, after the murder of George Floyd and the national uprising uh, for police accountability and racial justice. So having that uh, kind of counter uh, movement to uh, react against really spurred uh, these groups and Trump and his allies, you know, were well aware of that and the potential therein and uh, did everything they could to, you know, villainize uh, the the demands for racial justice and also, you know, by conflating uh, those leftist activists with this kind of cartoonishly uh, menacing villain that they uh, called Antifa. Yeah, it seems it seems the you know I haven't done the the research that you have, and that's that's why I want to toss this to you as a question. But it seems to me that a lot of this goes back to two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Um, in in December of two thousand eight, I was in Michigan for for Christmas, and uh, one of my three brothers is uh, uh, now two brothers is a uh, uh, a gun enthusiast, shall we say, and you know he's he target practice, and he's pretty good at it, and he owns a bunch of guns. 
And so when we get together, we go to this shooting range in Mason, Michigan, and we've been doing this for years, you know, with, sometimes with our kids, uh, typically the boys in the family. And we do, you know, we do competitive shooting. And we showed up, this was Christmas of 2008. Uh, Obama had just been elected, but he had not yet taken office. And we go into this shooting range, and typically, and it's huge. And typically, you know, it's like a warehouse. And typically, they have like just, you know, thousands of, of, of boxes of 100, of 100 rounds of ammunition each just lining the shelves. And the, it, it, most of their ammunition was gone. The guy would only sell me one box of, of uh, 40 caliber ammunition for, for the gun that I had. And mm-hmm. um, I said, why? And he pulls out his, his smartphone and, and shows me this thing from the NRA about how uh, Obama is going to take away our guns on January 21st. And mm-hmm. starts going off on this rant using the N-word about every third sentence, maybe, maybe uh, you know, two or three times in a sentence. And I noticed that, and I've been shooting at this right at this range for a lot of a lot of years. And I'm looking around the paper targets that they have that you can shoot at. Suddenly, I'm seeing paper targets that are clearly black men. Um, and and that was you know. And then you had Trump saying, you know, uh, Obama's not a real American, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Was how much and a Muslim? Yeah, exactly. A lot of yeah. How how much did the election of a black man in the White House? feed this movement that Donald Trump kind of surfed into the White House or, you know, how are they all tangled together? Yeah, it was huge. And uh, that was a pivotal moment. And that was really uh, Obama's election uh, precipitated the birth of what we now call the Patriot Movement with a capital P that includes groups like the Proud Boys uh, sorry, the Oath, Proud Boys came later, but the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters, um, that all of that arose and started, uh, mobilizing and organizing in a paramilitary fashion, uh, subsequent to Obama's election because they viewed, uh, him as a national security threat, as an illegitimate, uh, president in the, in, in, in the White House. And, you know, that those same fears and paranoias and kind of uh, nativist uh, uh, worldview were just reprised um, in, in 2020 after George Floyd and then with the rejection of, of uh, the legitimacy of Biden's election by yeah. the very same groups. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you go back to and I'm thinking back to 64 now, um, really, the John Birch Society got a major boost with the 1954 Brown v. Board. You know, the the forced integration Mm -hmm. of schools was how they they called it back in the day. And Mm -hmm. uh, again, it was the white reaction to 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 the requirement that white kids go to school with black kids. It seems Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I'm being myopic here, but it seems to me like the core issue, the germ of all of this, the, the, uh, you know, certainly it was for the Confederacy, has been race pretty much all along. Yeah, well, certainly there's always been a contingent of white Christian Americans that view any advancement or progress among other demographics in the country as a personal loss and deprivation. But I, I, I'm, I'm talking about you know, like in 1955, 56, 57, you know, I'm an old guy. <laughs> I remember those, those years. There were these billboards all over the country. We had them in Michigan that said impeach Earl Warren. 
Why? Because of the Brown v. Board decision. I mean, you know, Earl yeah, Warren was. But you can go back to Reconstruction. You can go back to sure. you know, the white vigilante groups that arose in the wake of the Civil War, um, precisely because of the abolition of slavery, or in the 1970s with the Posse Comitatus movement. Um, again, yeah, it's it's this this view, this feeling that um, any advance by black Americans, Muslim Americans, Hispanic Americans is a threat to, right. uh, to, to, to white Americans. What we saw yesterday, the insurrection, the rioting at the Capitol, political violence uh, was not an anomaly. It was very American. Look, we got to begin with the American Revolution, right? I mean, that is political violence, right? Rebelling against the King of England and the Civil War, political violence. But if we look at the more recent history, the last 150 years, uh, you, you, you look at the moment after Reconstruction. Reconstruction itself is political violence or how it is, how it unravels, right? And, you know, I, I think specifically uh, 1873 in Colfax, Louisiana, there's a thing called the Colfax Massacre in which... Democrats at the time uh, refused to accept that African-Americans had a right to vote. Now, he, now here are the parallels, right? Like, so what's different? What's unique? Right? When you have, you know, Trump contesting, saying what ballots are legal and what ballots are illegal. And he's focusing on Atlanta and Philadelphia and Milwaukee. Right. I mean, all these black communities. He's tapping into something that is very familiar, right? That black people don't have a right to vote. People of color don't have a right to vote. And so, you know, go back 150 years, 1873, you literally have white men armed who are part of a new organization called the Ku Klux Klan, but then other terrorist organizations like the Whites of Chameleon who literally are storming a county courthouse to throw out a duly elected government uh, that was Republican because they didn't feel that it was legitimate. And so what, what we saw yesterday literally was a, an extension Right. I mean, not just like, oh, this happened before and history is repeating it. No, we never stopped. We've been using political violence to keep African-Americans from voting in various ways for 100 years after Reconstruction. We saw it in Colfax. We saw it in Wilmington, North Carolina in, in, in 1898. I mean, time and time and time again. And so what we saw yesterday, what we saw at the Capitol is very much a part of the American political tradition whether or not we choose to acknowledge it. Now, it looks a little different, but it's absolutely a part of that tradition. And we just saw it manifest. Not surprising at all. I think the only thing that's surprising, I think to me and many other people, is that it took this long within this four years. But clearly it's been building. Can I ask a question just to follow up on that? Because it wasn't lost to me that the Confederate flag was inside the Capitol yesterday. And so I want you to help us make meaning of that. But, but what you've just described were successful coups of duly elected, democratically elected governments. And, and one way to read yesterday was a failed coup attempt. We can debate if, that, if that's what it was. But I'm just struck, similar to Melissa, in thinking about the history that you just outlined, Professor Jeffries, of all of these successful in state houses, you know, and after at the rise of Southern redemption, those were successful coup, political coups. True. And so help us make sense of, given, given the Confederate flag was flown at the Capitol yesterday, right, was right. walking through the halls of the Capitol, how do we make sense of that? 
Well, white supremacists also have a very long history of losing. I mean, the Civil War is just one <laughs> one big ass loss. Right. I mean, so they're OK with losing. Um, and so that isn't, you know, so they lost yesterday. Right. At least in the moment. But it's a mix. So, so this is this is this is the thing mm-hmm. that I think is one of the lessons that we need to take out of the last four years. The fragility of this democracy. Right. And so part of what saved the nation after the Civil War was the sacrifice of black rights. Right. I mean, that's what redemption was. They're like, look, we're not going to have another civil war. We barely got through that. So if y'all if y'all if, y- if y'all want to get rid of black votes, y'all want to suppress, y'all want to control black labor. We're OK with that. So the sacrifice of black votes in part in part allows for sort of this white democracy to play out. Right. To avoid another civil war. So the success that we saw or that we see in that sort of late 19th century period is really about suppressing black political activism and suppressing black voices. And if there were some white allies that got sacrificed in it, well, then so be it. But it was really about white supremacy. And so when we fast forward, I think, to what we've been seeing the last four years culminating in this attack on the Capitol, I think part of the important connective tissue is this idea of legitimate and illegitimate. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what Trump has been doing, certainly after the election, but even building up, you know, building up to it was this idea of illegitimacy and spinning that these government officials, this government is illegitimate. And that's always the danger. I mean, this was the danger when Barack Obama was in office and the whole Bertha thing, because you're saying that he's illegitimate. And when you when you get this notion of illegitimacy in the minds of people, they then will take it upon themselves to say, hey, if they're illegitimate, then they need to be removed. And I can use violence, very American, the American default for political expression to remove them from office. And so that's what we just saw. Right. You've been saying it's illegitimate. You've been saying it's illegitimate and you've been giving people license to use violence to to do what they think is patriotic. Right. You know, the Confederacy, you ask them, well, what was that about? It was like, oh, that was patriotism. The ultimate. Pa- really? That's what you got out of that? <laughs> right. and, and so you can see them, you know, waving this flag now. Right. You know, the, the Confederate flag never made it into the Capitol during the Civil War. And yet it's walking through the halls there. It's an extension of this of, of white supremacy. We didn't hear enough about that yeah. either yesterday. Right. Because that's who it was. Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN, and I have been a customer of theirs for years, so I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with VPNs, they're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things. And they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs, and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look... If all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country. If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK, just as one of thousands of examples. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, 
And that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast. So you can easily stream in HD and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash left you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself, and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash left. Talk radio was very obviously a thing before the 90s, but it really blossoms with the rise of Rush Limbaugh. How important is he in this evolution of conservatism? My sense is that it's hard, maybe impossible to overstate his significance, but maybe I'm giving him too much credit. I don't think you are. I mean, Limbaugh is hugely important as an innovator in the field of talk radio. You're right. It had existed before. It had largely been either local or not call-in programming. So to have a national program where people could call in, where you were live for three hours a day, that was something that was new. But also that when you had that show for three hours a day, that millions of people would tune in was something America just hadn't seen before. It was a new phenomenon in U.S. politics. <clears throat> Greetings to you, conversationalists all across the fruited plain. Rush Limbaugh with talent on loan from God. Election Day 1992, an EIB exit poll in process. By the early 1990s, Rush Limbaugh not only has millions of listeners, but he is treated as a genuine media and political phenomenon. He has best-selling books. He has a new television show in 1992 that Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News, helps produce. But he also is directly talking about politics every single day and politics from a conservative perspective. He does it in a very kind of, almost kind of a morning zoo kind of way. He has a lot of parodies and skits and gags, but clearly people are responding to it in a way that makes him seem like more than a media force. So, for instance, listeners to Rush start to set up Rush rooms, which are sections of restaurants where they will go and all gather together for the three hours a day of his program in between breakfast and lunch and just sit and listen to his show. It was something that was so dynamic and so entertaining and that people just hadn't experienced before. And he came out in 1992 for Pat Buchanan. And when he did... The Bush administration freaked out because, again, he wasn't somebody who had demonstrated any kind of sway on electoral politics, but he seemed like too big a force to ignore. And that Bush invites him to stay at the White House, correct? It's wild. He invites him to stay at the White House. When uh, Rush arrives at the White House, the president being, you know, kind of blue blood Yankee, like carries his bags. Rush Limbaugh sees this as a sign of deference that the president of the United States is carrying his bags. And he talks about it on his show the next day, but he also talks about it on his show for the next 30 years because he recognizes that something has shifted. He has become a player in electoral politics. There wasn't a real precedent for it. Wait, I, I forgot, or maybe I just never knew that Rush had endorsed Buchanan in 92, which tells you 
he could not only see where conservatism was headed, but he also knew that's where the heat was. That's where the business was. I have a hard time believing he did that out of any sincere ideological conviction one way or the other. I think it was just an entrepreneurial choice to follow the winds where they were blowing. There's a great book by Brian Rosenwald called Talk Radio's America that gets more into the behind the scenes on this. But, you know, Limbaugh was pretty honest about his decision to pursue political talk after years spent as a sportscaster and as a kind of shock jock. And he was like, money. It makes me money. <laughs> the thing that I think about when I'm programming is money. So he doesn't hide that he has that as his motive. I mean, look, I <laughs> I think Rush is an odious person with an odious legacy, but I can admit that he was an enormously gifted broadcaster. But that doesn't seem quite enough to explain what he became. I mean, what was it about him that broke through? What was different about it? Why did he become what he became? It's a great question because, I mean, part of it is his connection with the formal structures of politics, that he is talking to people like Roger Ailes, that he is talking to people like Bush later on when Newt Gingrich becomes Speaker of the House. The two of them are talking all the time. By the 1994 elections, the New York Times calls him the precinct captain for the Republican Revolution. He wasn't just an entertainer. And so why does he become that person? Why is it that people are so connected to him? And part of it is a media story. It's the ability of people to call into his show, to feel like they're participating and helping to co-create this show. Right. So part of his rise is often credited to the end of the fairness doctrine a piece of radio regulation that had required balanced reporting on controversial issues, that he is the voice for all of these people, and that he is saying things that they've never heard on radio before, that they don't hear in media. And it's not just his conservative politics, but it is this kind of over-the-top, outrageous, offensive material that he's able to wrap in entertaining jokes and laughs and skits and parodies. It's hard to really zero in on, but it's some combination of that entertainment and power and populism that gives him so much power. Yes. And you're speaking to some of the blurriness of the lines here that I think is really dangerous. During this time in the early and mid-90s, we have a spike in anti-government violence Mm -hmm. There's Ruby Ridge and there's Waco and there's the Oklahoma City bombing. You could argue that this was a precursor for what was coming, but also that it was early evidence that there were real world consequences to going on the air every day and stoking paranoia and hatred. That it may be a grift for someone like Limbaugh, but it sure as hell isn't for Timothy McVeigh. I just don't think we can overstate the role of these political entrepreneurs in creating a more dangerous environment that eventually spills into the streets. And I think Limbaugh is especially noteworthy in this respect. I think that's right in that he really heightens the us versus them politics on the right yeah. and leans into conspiracy theories. I mean, he's somebody who's talking about Vince Foster, who was an aide to the Clintons, who died by suicide, that the right for decades has argued was actually murdered by the Clintons or on the orders of the Clintons. He leaned into conspiracy theories and anti-government politics in such a way that it wasn't just run-of-the-mill conservatives who felt heard. 
you're very right that the militia movement gathered steam in the early 1990s. And while there were certainly more radical voices they were listening to, there is a a tradition of radical white power and radical anti-government programming on radio. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, right? Someone like Rush Limbaugh doesn't have to get on the air and say, hey, I'm I'm a white supremacist and we should burn down the government. But by buttressing and justifying some of these underlying grievances and exaggerating them for political effect because it's good for business, he does, in a very real way, give cover to those movements. And that's that's where it gets, I think, really morally murky. Yeah, and turns the temperature up on politics in a way. It's raising the stakes constantly, yeah. And in a hit dog will yelp kind of moment, when the Oklahoma City bombing happens and President Clinton is speaking out after, he talks about the voices of rancor and division in the country, on the airwaves. I'm sure you are now seeing the reports of some things that are regularly said over the airwaves in America today. They leave the impression by their very words that violence is acceptable. And he doesn't explicitly mention Rush Limbaugh, but Rush Limbaugh goes on air and says, President Clinton has just accused me of of being behind the Oklahoma City bombing. Again, exaggerating what Clinton said, but also feeling hit by that particular criticism. This is 1995. Bill Clinton blamed this program for the Oklahoma City bombing, folks. There is no Fox News yet. And he blames me for the Oklahoma City bombing. And the media loved it because they hated me then like they hate me now. They just ate it up. So we're talking with Luke Mogelson, the author of The Storm is Here, an American Crucible, a brilliant uh, reporting um, would you say that, you know, for the you did a deep dive on the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the three percenters and these these far right groups. Um, I know assigning percentages is a tough thing, but to what extent is this really just all about race? And to what extent is there some other sense? I mean, there's clearly a tribal identity that has has formed and kind of organized around these groups and to some extent around the GOP as well. Um, how much of that has to do with race and what other issues impinge on that or are part of that? And to what extent? Well, I think it's a it's really for me that the the animating uh, principle for a lot of these groups is a sense of victimhood and a belief that they're victims of persecution. Um, and because they're not, oftentimes uh, they have to invent, you know, antagonists and adversaries. And oftentimes that's where race comes in. Uh, it's, it's easy to, uh, identify others, you know, whether they're immigrants, Muslims, um, or black Americans as those kind of phantom villains in order to rationalize your own sense of, of, of victimhood and, and persecution. So to trigger and this, you, on, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So, and I, I don't think that that necessarily arises naturally, uh, among people on the right, but it's, it's shoved down their throats, you know, on a daily basis by their leaders and by their pundits and by the media that they watch, um, and by people, by their president. Yeah. 
Yeah, we have about a minute and a half here before we're going to hit a break that I can't control. Um, we're seeing right now, you know, Ron DeSantis and, and Greg Abbott uh, shipping brown people up north. And I, you know, I was watching CNN here in the in the studio and they were just all over this story, uh, just like Fox News is. So I switched to MSNBC. But, um, you know, they're still using race, it seems, to, to, to yeah. activate that that tribal sense among white people. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, there was a, there, there have been moments, uh, throughout the history of the Republican party when the, the party has seemed to recognize that that's not a strategy that's going to, uh, work forever as, you know, the demographics evolve in, in the country. But, uh, Trump, you know, um, rejected that recognition right. and, and decide, yeah. You ask so, in the book, can the center hold? Let me ask you that question. I don't hold? really have uh, I don't really have an answer to that question. I think, you know, time will tell um, and the midterms and going into 2024 will probably have a much uh, better sense of of whether or not. Do you think this extreme faction of Trumpism, the, the you know, that 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 embraces Russia, you know, Rand Paul calling for the end of the Espionage Act, for example, do you see that as an aberration? Uh, do, do you think that that's going to, you know, dilute itself or go away? Well, you know, something I've noticed uh, reporting overseas and war zones overseas is that the way extremism works is by eliminating the possibility of moderate participation. So they mm. attack, you know, people on their own side as viciously as they do their adversaries to reduce people's options to a choice between the ex radical flank of their own party and an intolerable enemy. And that's kind of where the Republican Party is at today. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy is facing calls from Democrats to apologize or even resign after telling GOP donors it would be, quote, hard not to hit House Speaker Nancy Pelosi with a gavel. An aide says McCarthy was just joking. In response to McCarthy's new comment, a Pelosi spokesperson slammed what he called McCarthy's, quote, threat of violence. The investigation into the attack on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, undergoing surgery for a fractured skull and arm injuries after a break in early Friday morning at their San Francisco home. The 42-year-old suspect in custody arrested, police say, in the act of assaulting Paul Pelosi with a hammer. The alleged attacker to face felony charges, including attempted murder. Investigators say the House Speaker was the target of the attack, but she was in Washington, D.C. at the time. Law enforcement officials was telling ABC News the investigation is being treated with great urgency because authorities have already been extremely concerned about a surge in threats against federal officials. The point that we find ourselves at is interesting, isn't it? And, and not necessarily in a cheerful way. So just ahead of the midterms, We've got Paul Pelosi, the husband of Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, attacked in his home. He seems to have fractured his skull. This is an elderly man. And Pelosi, Paul Pelosi, has had to have surgery for, for his injuries. And in the same week, uh, Elon Musk buying Twitter. It was 
a really awful attack, but it spawns so many interesting developments, not least showing us a little bit possibly of what Twitter is going to be like now Elon Musk has taken it over, especially in terms of disinformation, because he himself, and obviously he has a very large bully pulpit, he had a lot of followers anyway, but now he is chief twit, as uh, he says, now he's the owner of Twitter. He himself tweeting out conspiracy theories, completely unfounded, completely untrue conspiracy theories about this attack. What does this tell us about how Twitter under his ownership is going to deal with disinformation and voters, people being told things that aren't true, spread enough until people start believing them. Uh, Let's turn to Mariana for her view on all of this. She's here in the studio with me, as I say. She's very happily back from her van, and I'd like to have a bit of jolly banter about that van, and we'll actually get to the van a bit later on, but this is such a grim subject, isn't it? Where do the events of the last week leave us? I think it's a really important reminder of the real world consequences of online disinformation and conspiracy theories. The attacker who entered the home, um, there's evidence that he had shared conspiracies, disinformation, for example, about the election being rigged, and also some quite nasty memes about female politicians online. And, you know, it's impossible to look at what happened and not think about the correlation between what's going on on our social media feeds um, and what goes on in the real world. And I think it's crucial that this has happened in the week where Musk bought Twitter, because we were all asking that question, what's going to happen Mm. now after that attack on Pelosi? There was a moment where Musk could have chosen to say, okay, hold on a second. I believe in freedom of speech, but I really don't think it's okay that someone's gone to someone's house and attacked them. But that is not what happened. What happened was Musk shared a tweet promoting an unfounded, untrue conspiracy theory about what had happened, a conspiracy theory that's contrary to the evidence, the facts. Um, And there were lots of conspiracy theories, just as Mark explained in his voice note, about what had really happened, seeking to undermine the reality and the truth. And that's how this works. There's never one. There's always multiple different threads that look to deny and undermine and distort the reality, the evidence, what we know is in front of us and to change the narrative. Um, And the conspiracy that Musk tweeted and then later deleted did just that. It cast doubt on what had really happened. And I think that tells us a lot about the tone that's going to be set, that there's a gateway for disinformation and conspiracies, or rather a a condoning of them, that post-January the 6th, we sort of thought had gone away a little bit. We'll explain uh, once again who the undercover voters are and the extent to which this stuff is now playing big with them in, as you say, this crucial few days before they vote. Absolutely. This is a moment to remind people about our undercover voters. Um, They are five characters that I've created based on research from the Pew Research um, Centre. They are different people with different views. They sit across the political spectrum. um, They have opinions. They have different names. um, And they have social media profiles on the five main sites. Um, And what I do is take a look at what they're recommended, what they're targeted with, how their social media feeds compare in the build-up to the midterms. Before you do that, just we've got... Breaking news. We do. Because <laughs> you showed me your phone. So just t- tell everyone what you've just seen. So we have a new person who's interested in the undercover voters. And that person is Donald Trump Jr. And he has tweeted out our undercover voters. And he has said, and some still question if fake news exists. The BBC just admitted it created fake profiles across social media. And in response to him, I would like to say we have created fake profiles But those fake profiles are made to investigate what's happening on people's social media feeds. It's the only way we're able to do it because 
there's not transparency from the companies to know what people are recommended and how they're targeted. Our fake voters uh, don't have any friends except for me, and they certainly don't interact with anyone. They don't comment on posts. They're not affecting what other people are seeing on their feeds. Mm. They are a tool by which we can interrogate and observe subjective social media worlds that play a role in what's happening. When you explain it so cogently, I'm just thinking Donald Trump Jr. is going to say, actually, Marianne, I fully understand what you just said, and I'm so sorry I, I tweeted with a, a huge picture of you. <laughs> but anyway, OK, turn us on now to what the voters that you have created so scandalously in inverted commas what they're seeing as we might expect we've been seeing quite a lot about pelosi and this attack on the social media feeds of the undercover voters when it comes to populist right britney she has been recommended not just recently but over the past few weeks memes and images and quite violent rhetoric directed at female politicians in particular people like nancy pelosi but also people like hillary clinton or kamala harris as we always say our undercover voters is not a scientific experiment it's a way of us getting some insight into what people could be seeing but when we compare it with one of our social media characters from the left one of our undercover voters progressive left emma she does have some violent rhetoric but it tends to be much more general it tends to focus on Donald Trump supporters or racists or those kinds of catch-all terms as opposed to specific individuals. Um, and so I think it's important to think about how that hate is characterised in a different way. It's also interesting that someone like populist right Britney um, has been exposed to conspiracy theories, including those about Pelosi, including the one that Elon Musk tweeted. Um, that came up on Britney's feed pretty prominently before it was taken down. Marianne, I'm really interested to ask you about what they're seeing that's not mis- and disinformation, because, of course, some things on the internet are true. Um, and one of them is that respectable Republican politicians who haven't been forwarding these conspiracy theories have had some slightly odd things to say about this attack. Some of them have been mocking, making fun, trying to make political points, uh, including Carrie Lake, who's running for the governor in Arizona. Nancy Pelosi, well, she's got protection when she's in D.C. Apparently her house doesn't have a lot of protection. <laughs> so that sort of tone... It's minimising violence. It is uh, laughing at the victim of an attack that was inspired by these crazy conspiracy theories. It doesn't speak very well to the idea that we're ever going to return to respectable or, frankly, non-violent politics. So away from the disinformation, what are your voters seeing in terms of commentary about these attacks? They absolutely have seen a lot of those comments being made by prominent figures that as you say, seek to minimise or undermine what really happened. I think what's crucial is that that tone is being mimicked. And it's impossible often to prove what comes first. It's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. I can't ever definitively prove, oh, that Instagram account is absolutely copying the tone and the attitude of that politician. But it's definitely fair to say that those accounts that have been promoting disinformation so far appear to be taking their cues from the public figures who are now condoning that more mocking rhetoric and or even just entertaining the disinformation and not saying this is wrong, this is bad and that's why. And that sends out a very concerning signal ahead of the midterms and it's got a lot of these accounts much more active than they've been up until now. want to talk about the violent attack on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband. Last Friday, Paul Pelosi was attacked by an intruder with a hammer and zip ties. The suspect, David DePap, had posted a variety of conspiracy theories online 
posts about voter fraud, interestingly. Mm. In the aftermath of the attack, Republicans were amplifying lies and misinformation about the attack. And this is where it gets really ugly. Yes. Some Republican candidates for office, like Carrie Lake, she's running for governor in Arizona. And in Virginia, the Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, they actually made fun of the attack at campaign events. Yeah. Which is disgusting. Mm-hmm. Again, in the world's greatest democracy, okay. Barbara Rodriguez, who's a reporter for 19th News, put this into context about how experts talk about this attack as, quote, pointing to a form of violent misogyny that is part and parcel of larger threats to our American democracy. Our producer, Noor Saudi, spoke with Barbara. So let's go to the tape. I spoke with experts who talked about the ways in which we have seen political violence emerging over several election cycles and how that can have an impact on civic engagement from women who have been gradually increasing their political power in terms of elected office. And so it raises questions because there are reports that indicate that this was a targeted attack What message does this send to people, women in particular, who may be interested in political office in the future? That has ripple effects for an inclusive democracy where different folks are running for office and have more of a say on policy decisions. Yeah, it's kind of scary. Maria, I got takes, but I want to get yours first. You know, I think that, I mean, it is Nancy Pelosi's husband, after all. It's not a man member of Congress. It's her husband. Yeah. The importance being her. So this is misogyny. And I think in general, this is one of the things that is keeping me a little bit blue these days. (laughs) I mean, blue in the... You mean like sad, but like... Yeah. Not like democratic, like... Is that there does feel like there is this general misogyny in news media. Mm. I just kind of get this tinge of it throughout and you can't really put your finger on it say more well i don't know the thing is is i'm curious that's why i'm saying it's like it's not very overt but i'm kind of feeling it yeah it's like this story just kind of happened and it got not buried in some ways but you know it's normalizing this i mean imagine if this had happened you know a decade ago yeah there's no complete condemnation is probably what you're getting at i think that's what it is is that there's you know it's like this joke by Carrie Lake, which is really a fucking awful joke. I'm sorry. It's not even a joke. It's just a right. an insult. Nancy Pelosi, well, she's got protection when she's in D.C. Apparently, her house doesn't have a lot of protection, and people laughed. What's interesting, too, is like people laughed. There was no one in the room who was like, that's disgusting. Yeah, it's just disgusting. I mean, whatever you want to say, right? You know, Nancy Pelosi is a public figure. Paul Pelosi is the spouse of Nancy Pelosi, but there is a line that you never cross. And I think about, you know, Paul Pelosi is a dad, a grandfather. He's 82 years old. Friend. You know what I mean? It's like to people like 82. That's the part where I'm kind of like, you know, more class. I mean, I'm still stuck at what Eugene Robinson said on Morning Joe this week. When you act that way, you're just being mean. Like you're a mean person. Like you're an asshole. And so the politics of meanness, right? And that's what that's what's become normalized. Is this just like Right. And Republicans are all in, like I said, it's like the Roman Empire with them. <laughs> oh god. It's all about the power. 
it's a scorched earth type idea. But Maria, can I just say something about the pap? I know what you're going to say. These guys from Canada coming in with conspiracy theories. He's overstayed his temporary visit to the U.S., right? Do you know when he came to the U.S.? 2008 from Canada. <laughs> and I like the way that people are like, he might be deported. It's like, I mean, let's just be real. If it was, <laughs> might, you know, Jose Rodriguez from, imagínate. from El Salvador, like it would just be a different story. But these Canadians, I don't know. Exacto. And that's why. Doesn't fit the narrative. So when people say they use that derogatory term illegal yeah. or undocumented immigrant. Yes, everyone immediately thinks of people who are brown and speak Spanish or black and from Africa yeah. or from Haiti. But you don't necessarily think about all of the Europeans or the Canadians in this case I know. who are here without papers. I know. Well, listen, it was a violent attack. We wanted to talk about it. I'm not necessarily sure how we'll impact the midterms because Republicans are being so disgusting, ridiculously disgusting. It's the normalization of violence. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's horrible. It should it cannot be normalized. But political violence in our country. Yeah. Is nothing new. Listen, so moving on to our second topic, which is somewhat related. Speaking of political violence, there is voter intimidation. That we've been seeing in multiple states across, what'd you say, the world's greatest democracy? You know, question mark, question mark. <laughs> a federal judge in Arizona imposed new restrictions on Tuesday, saying that these are members of a right wing group who have been monitoring. You know, have you seen these pictures, Maria? They've been monitoring these ballot boxes. I actually haven't seen the pictures. No, they're literally by the ballot boxes, armed. So like Jesus in Maricopa County. So think about that. Because you can do open carry. Yeah. And Maricopa County is, you know, Latino. But now the judge said on Tuesday that they have to stay at least 250 feet away. But you still have to pass them. That's what I said. And I'm like, Phew. I'm like, whoa. Okay. Similar incidents were reported in Pennsylvania. No surprise. We're also seeing a rise in misinformation. Mm -mm -mm. And then in Texas, precinct chair for the Travis County Republican Party was going door to door, accusing people of illegally voting by mail. Jesus. Okay. Okay. So instead of going door to door to register people yeah. to vote, you're going door to door to terrorize people. Exactly. Against voting. You know, I kind of wish like, he knocked on my mom's door. That would be over <laughs> in a second. Anyway, um, we've already seen a large number of election workers resign over the past couple of years because of the increase in threats to their lives. Right. Okay. So think about that, Maria. That was a big takeaway from January 6th. You're a democracy geek and people who are working elections are like, I'm quitting because I fear for my life. We've just heard clips today, starting with Inside Edition, laying out several stories of violence that have broken out on the floor of Congress. AmeriCast looked at the history of political violence in the U.S. and the parallels between our present and the time before the Civil War. The Tom Hartman program, in two parts, explored the violence of the Trump era in the context of the racial resentment and violence that came before. 
System Check discussed the long history of white supremacy, fighting, and losing before turning to delegitimizing our political system as a last resort. The Gray Area looked at the role of Rush Limbaugh and talk radio in stoking anger and violence in the 90s. I played two ABC clips, the first from a year ago of Kevin McCarthy joking that he'd like to hit Nancy Pelosi with the speaker's gavel, and the second being a report of the break-in and hammer attack on Paul Pelosi. AmeriCast discussed the attack on Pelosi in the context of Elon Musk buying Twitter and helping to spread conspiracy theories himself, and In the Thick also discussed the Pelosi attack and tied in misogyny, the normalization of political violence, and the intimidation of voters. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from The Gray Area looking back to the role of Pat Buchanan in helping to normalize anti-democratic tendencies on the right. Buchanan is writing in his column about how the American press is obsessed with this idea of democracy, and he puts democracy in scare quotes. And he goes on to write that now that we are freed of the constraints of the Cold War, maybe it's time to rethink some of these assumptions. Democracy seems to be a pretty inefficient form of government. What about autocracy? We could get a lot more done. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. I am calling you the morning after the elections. The Democrats obviously performed much better than many people thought, including, I must admit myself, granted, nothing has been settled. Even the Senate is still up in the air, but that does not matter because no matter how everything falls into place this year, I need your audience, who I know are very engaged, who are very forward-thinking, who are constantly trying to strategize the next moves which will take this darkness which has befallen this country and crack it with light. I need to give them a point of optimism because you're fighting these people and you're winning. But not only are you winning, you are defeating them, and that's a, there's a difference in that. There's a difference in winning and defeating. Winning means that the enemy can still come back. Defeating means they have no pathway back. And many of your listeners know the difference, and they have their minds set not on winning, but on once and for all defeating these uh, negative forces. Now, I didn't just call for that. There are going to be individuals who listen to your show, who possibly know people who listen to your show, who are going to be running for offices in the next six years. Remember what I said in 2018, we need to be really concentrated on the next six to 10 years, a strategy which will bring about a real political change in this country. To those folks who are going to be running, I wanted to offer them some resources. As you know, Jay, I read a lot. So I wanted to drop in this message some books 
for people who are really seriously considering running for office and possibly even participating in campaigns over the coming six years. The first book that I want to encourage people to get to buy is called Legislative Strategy by Edward Snyder, S-C-H-N-E-I-E-R. The second book is called Democracy Inc. Inc. by Sheldon Woolen, W-O-L-I-N. The third book is the Legislative Drafters Desk Reference by Lawrence E. Filson, F-I-L-S-O-N. The fourth book, In the Shadows of the American Century by Alfred McCoy, M-C-C-O-Y. And then finally, oh, I'm, I apologize, one, one last one, and then I have kind of a duel. The Capitol Hill Playbook. Nicholas, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S, Balthazar, B-A-L-T-H-A-Z-A-R. The Capitol Hill Playbook should be studied because I believe this is what many right-wingers have been using kind of as a backdrop to how they've been playing politics. And then finally, two books that are rather older. The first one has just been reprinted or it was reprinted two years ago called The Mandate for Leadership. If you want to understand how this country got to the point that it's at, you want to check out The Mandate for Leadership. This is a Heritage Foundation tome. There's five volumes to it. If you can't really purchase the first volume, which again, it was republished. Actually, it's online for free now back in 2020. Uh, if you can't find it, though, just purchase the fourth one, which came out in the 1990s. And then finally, the Cato, C-A-T-O, Handbook for Congress. There's a newer one, and then there's several editions back. I think they're up to the seventh or eighth edition now. Purchase those books, prepare yourself for running for office, and ladies and gentlemen, keep up the great work. Jay, as always, man, you're doing fantastic work, you and the team. Thank you so very much. Peace. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to V for that encouragement and all of his book recommendations, which are always fantastic. He actually inspired me to finally get a book that's been on my list for over a decade because V was recommending books written by and for right-wing organizing, which I think is great. It, you know, good ideas for acquiring legitimate political power are nonpartisan, really, and we should look for good strategies wherever we can find them. Not to mention, reading right-wing books helps you know what the other side is planning. But that got me thinking about the book Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky, which is a fascinating example of an organizing manual. My first encounter with it was having it recommended to me by a grassroots climate organizer. My second encounter with it was there was a whole period of time 
where I was constantly hearing the right wing name this book and the author, who is Jewish, and so there's a little anti-Semitism thrown in there as well, uh, naming the book and the author as a source of, you know, vaguely evil left-wing socialism in the context of attacking Obama for having been a neighborhood organizer. But after that, criticism of the book sort of died away, and then I began to hear rumblings that some extremists on the right had actually picked up the book for themselves and started using it to develop their own strategies. Fascinating. So honestly, it's a bit shameful that I haven't gotten around to it till now. And just so you know, it was written back in the 70s, so obviously some of it's going to be out of date, but I still think it's going to be worth a read. And so I, I just bought it today. And... You know, if that's of interest to you, and I don't mean for this to turn into a surprise advertisement, but this is just simply the truth, that the audiobook, because, you know, I prefer audiobooks, of Rules for Radicals is not cheap, but I was able to get it at a, you know, extremely deep discount using my Libro membership. And Libro is an affiliate partner of ours because I sincerely believe that they're the best place to buy audiobooks. So if you want to check them out, go to bestoftheleft.com slash Libro so they know we sent you. And if you read Rules for Radicals, please chime in and let me know what you thought about it. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of Left Discord community to talk about the show or the news or the elections or whatever you like. Links to join are in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.